Welcome to Tablets Parsha in Progress, where we talk about the Torah portion of the week and why it matters. I'm Abigail Pogrebin, author of My Jewish Year, 18 Holidays, One Wandering Jew. And I'm Rabbi Dov Linzer, president of Yeshivat Chovevei Torah Rabbinical School. Congratulations on your presidency. Thank you, thank you. It's very exciting. Yes, it is. And we're talking Torah together, not just because the Hebrew Bible is so challenging and relevant today, but because we found that this ancient text comes to life in conversation, especially between two people who practice Judaism very differently. So, Abby, this week we're going to talk about Kitisa, which many of us know as the Golden Calf Parsha. And we're going to focus on what it means to create false idols. Let's remind everyone that the golden calf was built by the Israelites while Moses was up on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments. So here's what the Parsha actually says. Quote, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, the people gathered against Aaron, that's Moses' brother, mm-hmm. and said to him, come, make us a God who shall go before us. For that man, Moses, who brought us from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has happened to him. Aaron said to them, take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. And all the people took off the gold rings that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. This he took from them and cast in a mold and made it into a molten calf. And they exclaimed, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So first of all, this violates the second commandment. Right? You shall have no other gods besides me. That's it. Is that the whole sin, violating commandment two? Yeah, but it's not just, okay, technically you did something wrong. I mean, we have to understand, like, the size and the weight of this. Um, You know, the second commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me, for I am the Lord your God, a jealous God. So what does that mean, jealous? It means that, you know, when we give our worship and our fealty to another god, it's like committing adultery. It's, it's, It's an act of betrayal. And a committed relationship means sticking through the hard times, you know, not stepping out of the marriage um, and playing the field as soon as there's a little trouble at home. That is a profound theological sin, betrayal, abandonment of God. And they did it pretty quickly. Yep. People look at the golden calf often as a metaphor for worshiping the wrong things. But in a way, I feel like that's a little hackneyed by now, maybe because I've heard it a lot in sermons. (laughs) Um, But there is something to look at kind of what replaces the right kind of worship right. or the right kind of right. adoration. I don't know. You know, but I, I want to talk about something a little different because I don't think that the calf was really an other god. I think that it's a way of giving a physical representation. And an idol can be that. You can worship an, a god through an idol, and that's also corrupting God because you've put something in between you and God that corrupts that idea. But is it like a barrier between you and God? Is that what It's you're... a barrier, and it means that now you're thinking about this physical object. And so it was meant as a means of connecting, but it actually distorts what God God is, and it distorts the relationship. Does that does that resonate in any way? Like if we ask the question, not what do we give ultimate meaning to, but if we ask the question, do we ever make some something to stand between the, us and God? Maybe we try to make it as a way of connecting, but I mean, it skews it. I think a million things get in the way of a connection with God or with spirituality, and I'm not sure I could even list all the barriers I I set up, but. 
I think that it's uh, it's a challenging idea to even think that we're entitled to a dialogue with God personally. Right. And I, I mean, and I think it's exactly that because it's so hard to think that I can talk directly to God. That's like exactly what the Israelites were feeling. Like, where's this God? So we try to create things that will take that place. So if like you're asking me in my community, I think one thing sometimes that takes the place of developing a spiritual relationship to God is like a hyper focus on halachic detail, like the details of religious law, which is super important, you know, but when that hyper focus is a way of distracting us from asking bigger questions, when all of our conversation is about halacha, we're not asking the questions we need to be asking. So let's turn to the coda of this story, which also seems to me conveniently excised or omitted in most retellings. Moses doesn't just force his followers to drink this dirty gold dust. He encourages the slaughter of 3,000 of his Jewish family as punishment for their Mm -hmm. lack of faith. They built this calf and they should die. So what the heck? I mean, I thought Moses had prevailed upon God. I thought he had (laughs) had begged and convinced God to forgive his people for the sin of the calf. Yeah, I mean, he stopped God from collective punishment. He stopped God from, like, wiping out the entire people, Um, you know, those that were innocent or at least were bystanders and not active participants. So this wasn't the Noah and the flood. I mean, this wasn't the flood that wiped out humanity. Exactly. And, you know, sometimes when the Torah deals with idolatry, you see this idea of collective punishment. But here Moses stopped that. But when he gained, but he was going to punish those who were guilty, you know. So when he came down from the mountain, he gathered the Levites around him. They are the assistant assistants to the priests, the well, Levites. Yeah, at this stage, not yet. But the Levites are the tribe, one of the twelve tribes, the tribe that Moses and Aaron are from. So he gathered them around him. And he said, you know, whoever is for God, come to me. And they went through the camp and they drew their swords and they slaughtered 3,000 people, presumably all of the people who worshipped the calf. Um, I mean, and the rabbis try to tame it a little bit. They say that they actually, like, Moses and Aaron held court cases and witnesses came and testified that the people had worshipped it. The rabbis often try to sort of bring things into a legal construct. but In the Talmud, you mean, in their commentary, but there's no evidence of that. no, no, No evidence of that in the text. So that's a pretty bloody ending to Revelation. Mm-hmm. I mean, the <laughs> way we understand it then, not everyone who made it to Sinai lived to actually receive the law. That's true. Is that right? That is true. They escaped years of slavery only to die at the hand of their own people. People. Yeah. That's harsh. Was, yes, but a small percentage, 3,000 out of 600,000 okay. men. It's a fraction. <laughs> Um, so, you know, how do you deal with that, Abby? I mean, how, how do you deal with all this violent punishment? And I guess what I want to ask more specifically is in the context of something that is a theological sin, you know, they're not doing something immoral against another human being. They're sinning only against God. So do you think that that makes this harsh punishment more justifiable or less justifiable? I mean, it's hard to feel like it's anything but patently unfair to mm-hmm. me. That you have these Israelites, they're just getting used to this monotheism thing. (laughs) Of course, they were going to get it wrong at first. And it's understandable that they would be doubters of God after what they'd been through in Egypt for 400 years. And what do you think? Well, I think from the Torah's perspective, theological sins are at least as bad as the interpersonal ones. But personally, I mean, I agree with you. It's very hard to think why such a harsh punishment for something that was done against God. And, you know, God is able to forgive. It's not like human beings were actually hurt in the process. 
I mean, I think it's somewhat easier to understand when we remember, like you were saying, that this was the beginning of their formation as a nation, and it was the first establishing of their relationship with God. So on the one hand, they, we could expect them to get it wrong. But on the other hand, maybe it was critically important that at this stage, the message of absolute fidelity be like sent out loud and clear. And, you know, maybe as slaves, they needed something harsh and violent so that they would really get the message, you know, because like one of the biggest innovations of Judaism is not just that there's a single God and not many gods, but it's also that God cannot and should not ever be represented physically. And that's really hard to connect to something that's completely out of your experience. So I think that that's why they wanted something without Moses to connect to. They needed something tangible. It seemed as if they were having PTSD from Mm -hmm. centuries of slavery. I mean, the Israelites didn't know how to trust a new leader who promised a better land and no more oppression. I mean, who can blame them? They didn't know whether to trust a God that was invisible, so they built a God that they could see. Yep, that's it. But yeah, I mean, it's something really to struggle with. Well, let's leave it with the struggle. <laughs> Shabbat shalom, Reb Linzer. Uh, Shabbat shalom, Abigail. We hope you'll join us next time for Parsha in Progress. I'm Abby Pogrevin. And I'm Dove Linzer. Nice to talk to you, Dove. Nice talking, Abby. Parsha in Progress is written and hosted by Rabbi Dove Linzer and Abigail Pogrebin. It's produced by Shira Talishkin and edited by Sophia Steiner-Evoy. The show is executive produced by Josh Cross, Jacob Siegel, and Tablet Magazine.